Um, that title, The Kingdom Underground, it so much describes the reality of God at work in our lives, doesn't it? So much of what God does is beneath the surface, beneath the surface of our awareness, our observation, uh, so much of the good that God does is beneath the surface. You know, the person sitting next to you, or the people you meet, there's so much more going on in their lives, isn't there? I was reminded of this recently when I got an email from Kenna Quiller of our church staff. And Kenna, at the bottom of every email, has this tagline that I think is so great. Let's take a look at it. Everyone you meet is fighting a battle you know nothing about. Be kind, always. Isn't that true? Everyone you meet is fighting a battle you know nothing about. Uh, it's true of every one of us. And here's the good news, that beneath the surface where no one else can see, God can see, and God is at work. And that's the kingdom underground. We have been looking at the parables, the kingdom of heaven parables in Matthew chapter 13. And they're all kingdom of heaven parables. And so the first one was about the sower, you'll remember, who sows the seed, and the seed is the word of God, and that uh, has different effects, different yields, and different types of soil. You thought about that. Then we thought about that parable about the wheat and the weeds. The weeds is an emblem of evil, and God allowing both to grow up, but God at the end of all time judging finally the evil and rooting it out. We thought most recently about mustard seed and yeast, these little things that have transformative power that are so much more impactful than we might imagine. And today we look at a twin parable, two parables that Matthew puts together, and uh, they are unique to Matthew's gospel. Before I actually read the text, let me just say a word about the word parable. The word parable in the original language is two parts, para and bole. Para, you know, is from the word like paramedic. It means to come alongside. It's something next to. And bole means to throw, like the word ball or ballistic. It's something that is thrown together, as in this is like this. That's a parable. A parable is uh, also the word we have behind the word parabola or parabola. See that? Remember that from geometry? You can almost see it right there. This is like this. And I like to think of, whenever I see a parabola and think about the parables of Jesus, I like to think of a fish hook. Because it seems to me that's what Jesus is trying to do. He's contrasting or comparing two separate things that he could hook us, hook us in our imagination and reel us in to his truth. With this in mind, let's take a look at this morning's parables from Matthew 13, Kingdom Parables of Jesus. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, you told stories, you told parables, and you caught the attention of your original listeners, and we want you to catch our attention now. So would you, by your Spirit, apply your truth to our hearts and lives? We pray in your name. Amen. Years ago, in one of the services here, I was preparing to preach on heaven. 
And in my research, I came across a cartoon by one of my favorite cartoonists, Gary Larson, was in the cartoon strip, The Far Side. Anybody remember that? I think Gary Larson captured a lot of what heaven is in a lot of our imaginations. Here's a picture of that cartoon. There's a man who's apparently gone to heaven. He's gotten his halo and his wings, and he's sitting like an angel on a cloud. And frankly, he looks a bit bored, and he's saying, wish I'd brought a magazine. I think that so often this captures sort of the impoverished imagination that we often have when it comes to heaven and to the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus' parables are meant to break through this impoverished imagination. They're, they're meant to spark our creativity and ignite our imaginations. And so that's what Jesus wants to do, to break through those things. So let's think about this term, kingdom of heaven. It's very interesting to me that in uh, Mark and Luke, those other two gospels next door to Matthew, whenever Jesus tells a parable, it's always the kingdom of God. But Matthew always says the kingdom of heaven. Now, why is this? Well, to put it simply, Matthew's is the Jewish gospel. Matthew, as a Jew and writing for Jewish Christians, is careful when it comes to the name of God, as our Jewish friends are today. In fact, if you uh, see a Jewish uh, synagogue uh, newsletter very often, when they refer to God, they will write it as G hyphen D because they're so intent on not dishonoring the name of God. Well, Matthew does this too by calling it not the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of heaven. And when we come to these stories, scholars wrestle with wanting to know what does kingdom refer to? Is it a realm or is it a reign? In other words, is it real estate over which a king reigns primarily, or is it a regent, the king themselves? And scholars have debated this back and forth, and the conclusion seems to be kingdom refers to a reign, the authoritative reign of God in Jesus Christ. It's a reign over things, not so much a realm. Scholars then have debated, well, then the kingdom. Is it present or is it future? And as scholars have wrestled with it, they've come to conclude that it is both. Remember the old Venn diagram? Venn diagram, I love Venn diagrams. Consider the earthly realm on the left circle. That is really our present existence living on earth. The heavenly realm, the other circle to the right, really refers to the completed future reign of God in Jesus Christ. And what we live in now as believers in Jesus, we live in the crosshatched or red area, the kingdom on earth. It's the kingdom from the future in the present. And this is what led uh, scholar George Eldon Ladd in his little book on the kingdom of God to talk about the presence of the future. Friends, we live because of Jesus Christ in the presence, the presence of the future. Reminds me a little bit of this verse from my favorite psalm, Psalm 103, verse 19. It describes this reign. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. The kingdom reign of God in completion is, of course, in heaven, but God now seeks to reign over earth and to reclaim all the structures of earth and all the inhabitants of earth under his gracious uh, rule. And we pray this, don't we? Every time we say the Lord's Prayer, remember that phrase, we pray it. Thy kingdom come. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. 
We're praying for the invasion of God's kingdom in Christ to enter our lives, to enter our world. This is what we pray for. Thy kingdom come. And then we, of course, conclude in that great crescendo of the Lord's Prayer. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The kingdom was central to the teaching of Jesus. As I've thought about how to capture today's twin parables, I've come up with this phrase, and I want to share with it, uh, it with you and build on it. What we're talking about today is this. When King Jesus reigns over your life and the world, it's like discovering priceless treasure. Do you remember your first Easter egg hunt as a child? Think back to that time. What was that like for you? That joy of discovery to find those Easter eggs that were hidden and to put them in your basket, wasn't that just delightful? This joy of discovery of something hidden that is uh, meaningful to us, it's deeply embedded in our human experience. And it reminds me of a time when uh, our family was vacationing in northern Wisconsin. Every year we go up to the family cabin to be with my mom and dad. And when our boys were younger, we uh, got, got into fishing together, and we would visit the tackle shops of Land Lakes, this little town near where our cabin is. And I'll never forget going into a tackle shop and looking at the fishing gear and going around a corner and seeing that this tackle shop was selling scuba gear. Now, why would you want scuba gear in northern Wisconsin? I mean, the lakes are fine and the fish are fine, but it's not a lot to look at. Why scuba gear in northern Wisconsin? I asked the owner of the shop. And well, it turns out that apparently in the 1920s, Al Capone, the gangster in Chicago, had millions of dollars which he hid at the bottom of a lake in northern Wisconsin. (laughs) And to this day, adults are buying scuba gear to look for that hidden treasure. Can you believe that? There's something delightful about finding hidden treasure, and Jesus knew it and tied into it with his teaching. Jesus said it's not only like finding hidden treasure, knowing my reign over your lives, but it's like a pearl, a pearl of great price. The word pearl in Greek is an interesting word, and if you take nothing else from today's sermon, take away this. In Greek, the word for pearl is margarita. Bet you didn't know that. You can impress your friends later today with that bit of knowledge, okay? Jesus says that discovering his reign over your life is like finding this pearl of inestimable value. You know, in the ancient world, pearls were worth more than gold. In fact, Cleopatra, in the century before Jesus, the queen of Egypt, had a pearl that was reputed to have been worth tens of millions of dollars. And I did a little research about pearls today and their worth, and there apparently is this particular pearl called the La Peregrina Pearl. It was discovered in the mid-16th century off the coast of Panama. And there it is. It's pearl-shaped, or excuse me, yeah, yeah, it's down at the very bottom, pear-shaped pearl. And this pearl made its way back to the royal family in Spain. It was traded between the royal families of Europe. It ended up in England... And then believe it or not, in the mid-20th century, A.D., of course, Richard Burton, the actor, found this pearl and purchased it for only $37,000. And he gave it as a wedding present to Elizabeth Taylor. 
Now, this was my discovery the other day. Elizabeth Taylor was with Richard Burton in the movie Cleopatra. Isn't that interesting? Well, get this. Uh, Liz Taylor had that particular La Peregrina pearl, and she had Cartier, the jeweler, redo it in this current form, and at its most recent sale, it, they paid $11 million for it. Jesus is saying, it's like discovering the La Peregrina pearl. This is what my kingdom's like. This is how valuable it is. This is treasure in your lives. And yet, for so many of us, is it a treasure or is it not? For so many of us, maybe not so much. We take for granted the things of Jesus. In 1982, I became a Christian on the island of Kauai. Uh, I was a sophomore in college, and I'd been putting God off all my life. And a couple factors came together that summer, and it all came to a head that when, we went, when I went to Hawaii and was with my friend on the island of Kauai, and there I saw God's dramatic creation on the north shore, the Nepali coast. If you've ever been there, you know how beautiful it is. And then with my friend, we were debating philosophy, and I found myself defending the Christian faith for the first time out on a balcony of the hotel we stayed at. And it's so interesting. Just a few weeks ago, my wife, Rupali, and I visited Kauai again, and we literally stumbled upon the hotel and saw the area where I became a Christian. But here's the thing. When I first became a Christian in 1982, I did it in a very solemn, sober, serious way, and my mantra was this, I'm going to take Jesus seriously. I've been putting him off. I'm ready to take him seriously. And so mine was mostly an ethical conversion. And it wasn't until about seven years later, in 1989, that I began to taste the treasure. 1989, Rupali and I were first married we moved to Pasadena, California. I started seminary, and everything just blew up for me. I went into a clinical depression about 18 months long, and I struggled with terrible guilt and shame feelings. If you've ever felt those, you know how terrifying that can be. And it was just as though I was going to lose my faith, possibly lose my marriage, lose my calling as a pastor. And it was over this 18-month period that God began to rebuild me bringing mature Christians into my life who could point me to Jesus, bringing me counselors and therapists and other things. And I began to taste for the first time the goodness of God, the grace of God, the fact that God had dealt with my sin, the fact that Jesus Christ was all I needed and that he was for me. I began to taste the treasure of the gospel. No doubt I needed the ethical conversion of 1982, but it was the treasure and its discovery in 89 that has stayed with me ever since. And you know what? I'm still discovering the treasure, and so are many of you. Discovering the grace-filled reign of Jesus Christ in your life is like finding buried treasure or a pearl of great price. And sometimes it's so evident to us. Most of you know, or many of you know, that uh, we had a miracle in my wife's family, our family recently. Uh, not quite two years ago, my father-in-law, a 90-year-old Hindu man, lifelong Hindu, came to Jesus Christ on his deathbed. It was a deep, thoroughgoing conversion. Just amazing act of God. Well, I'm here to tell you that that miracle continues in the family. For my mother-in-law, an 85-year-old Hindu woman, this past December 
was in great pain, and she called out to Jesus and said, Jesus, if you will heal me, I'll become your follower and be baptized. He healed her. He healed her. And so we baptized my mother-in-law back in early January. She took her first communion shortly after that. She's now attending a small Presbyterian church in the Bay Area of California. Miracles happen. Treasure is real. Jesus Christ comes into our lives, and we celebrate that. This is what Jesus is talking about, the pearl of great price, the great buried treasure. Let's go back to our statement. When King Jesus reigns over your life and the world, it's like discovering priceless treasure and enjoy going all in. The man who finds the hidden treasure in joy goes out and sells all that he has. All that he has. It's joy that motivates him. Surprise delight at the goodness of God reigning in Jesus Christ over his life. Joy. Joy is what kickstarts the Christian life. Joy is like the spark plug in a combustion engine that gets the fuel exploding and the engine going. Joy. Joy is what motivates us. And then we go all in. You know that phrase, all in. We've used it here at the church before, but this is the picture of all in. A gambler, in this case, going all in with everything, betting everything on the goodness, in this case of Jesus Christ, the goodness. Now let's be clear, we do not buy the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is not up for sale. It is God's free gift to us in Jesus Christ. But once we begin to apprehend, comprehend, the goodness of the kingdom, Jesus calls us to go all in. And many of us have, and many of us still want to. God in Christ is always inviting us to go all in, to surrender, to trust him. And it's going to look different for different ones of us. It's going to happen in different ways over a different length of time. What is it, however, that keeps us, so many of us, from going all in with Jesus Christ? Why is it that we resist Jesus? Why is it true of me? Why is it true of us? I've thought about it. And I think one of the things that keeps us from going all in is fear. Fear of letting go. We've all seen that bumper sticker, haven't we? Let go and let God. Well, that's easy to say, but it's a lot harder to do. We're afraid of letting go. We're afraid of giving up control. We're afraid of losing our so-called freedom. We can then white-knuckle clutch, desperately holding on to our lives, and meanwhile, life just falls through our fingers. Reminds me a little bit of a story of a raccoon trap I read once. Apparently, in parts of our country, people will catch raccoons using a ball jar. A ball jar, a glass jar with a steel lid. They will punch a hole through that steel lid, big enough for a raccoon to reach their hand into. And then they will put in that jar something shiny and sparkly and apparently a raccoon will reach into that hole through that hole grab the sparkly thing and not let it go and be trapped and that's what i think we often do by not letting go and letting god we clutch onto something and we don't let it go and life slips away jesus christ is inviting us to let go of our clutch on things like these and to trust him to go all in what keeps us from going all in? Not only fear, but sometimes it's being too comfortable. Too comfortable. 
Life is good, the slogan goes, and so does the company, apparently. Life is good. And in Boulder, life is good. Life is very good. And so we figure, well, I don't really need God. I don't need Jesus Christ. I'm doing just fine, thank you very much. But life has a way of changing, doesn't it? And in just a moment, life can completely transform. We lose our health. We lose a loved one. We lose something and life seems to slip through our grasp again. And that, I think, is the moment that God invites us to trust Him. God invites us to come all in. Life's tragedies, life's hard times, those are the opportunities that God extends to us, inviting us to go all in. What keeps us from going all in? Fear, being too comfortable, and also mere religion. Mere religion, we go to church, we get, go through the motions, we think that suffices, meanwhile our souls are, are not fed at a deep level. It reminds me of a, a statement I once heard, that we can be inoculated with a weakened form of the virus so that we never catch the real thing. Inoculated with mere religion so we don't come into the treasure of knowing and following Jesus Christ. Does this describe you? It can so easily describe us as church-going Christians. We are merely religious, and God invites us deeper to trust Jesus more fully. So let's go back to our statement. When King Jesus reigns over your life and the world, it's like discovering priceless treasure and enjoy going all in. Where are you in this statement? Are you on the way to discovering the priceless treasure, the reign of Jesus Christ over your life? Where are you? Are you needing more evidence, perhaps? Maybe a more experience? We'll pray for that. Have you discovered the priceless treasure and are you now contemplating going all in? Jesus invites you in. Will you do that? Some of you may know the name Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was uh, one of five martyred missionary Christians in the mid-1950s. Jim Elliott was an amazing person. He and his um, colleagues with their wives and families went down to Ecuador and they brought the gospel to the Alca tribe and did a number of things to reach out to this unreached people group. And then in a misunderstanding, something went wrong and all five male missionaries were killed. They were martyred in 1956. And uh, we have uh, heard this story, many of us, through Jim Elliott's widow, Elizabeth Elliott, she wrote an amazing book called Through Gates of Splendor. Great read. But the thing I remember Jim Elliott for most is this really well-known quote of his where he says this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So often we cling to those things we cannot keep and God invites us to give those up and to gain what we cannot lose. Have you done that? Are you on the road with me? Let me pray for you. Lord, I thank you for my friends here. I thank you that you are at work in each of their lives. I thank you that you are wooing them and winning them in ways that only you can do. And we would pray that you continue to move us along that continuum. Help us to discover the great joy of releasing control to you. 
Help us, O Lord, to go all in. We pray in your name. Amen.